Welcome to the Bridges family. If you have not been here or it's been a while, we want to welcome you back home. Um, If this is your first time with us, uh, I hope that you feel encouraged and excited about an opportunity to join a group of people who are trying to discover how to follow Jesus and what that means, a relationship with him. We're at the end of a series and messages that we've done on Jesus Christ. We've called it Christology. And it's a foundation of what we're doing for the rest of the year. And if you have not been able to be here with us or online, you can grab them online with us. It's been a rich blessing. Um, I want you to think about one of the most beautiful places that you've ever been to. Get it in your mind, okay? Fix it in your mind. One of the most beautiful things that you've ever seen. For me, I have this long list of beautiful places I've traveled to. Um, I think about Interlaken in the Swiss Alps. Oh my goodness, um, just the beauty of the lakes and the glacier melt and the Alps are just incredibly beautiful. I think of uh, the rim of the Grand Canyon, just stepping out there and seeing the vista and all the amazing you know, colors and hues of the canyon. I think of, um, I think of an opportunity to uh, be married and see my wife, right? The beauty, I, I'm getting points for this. Um, <laughs> think of the most beautiful thing that you've experienced. Um, for me, like on a ski lift on top of Breckenridge, we can see all the Rockies, the amazing beauty of the Rockies, and the beaches in Kauai. I love that place. Just the verdant hills, green, and then the sand and the tropical fish. I could swim there for a long, long time with all the beautiful colors. For me, the most beautiful place that I've ever experienced or seen is the cross of Christ. It sounds crazy, doesn't it? And maybe you just like expect a pastor to say something like that, some weird thing, spiritual, religious-sounding thing. But this morning, I want you to take another look, not just at the vista of Calvary, but at the work of what Jesus actually did for you and for me and for my family members and the people in my neighborhood and the people in the Bay Area and for the beauty of what he did for the world. It's remarkable, really, when you think that this place of grisly torture and death became the most beautiful place for millions of people over two millennium to visit the place where they experience just such stunning amazement that takes their breath away when they see what the work of God has done for them. The atonement, see, is a place where the truth of our lives connects. The word atonement really literally means at one God taking what was absolutely separated from himself alienated, severed, wrecked, broken. Scripture calls it even dead. That's us. And taking us from that place that's farther than the farthest flung galaxy from us right now to a place of actual oneness, intimacy, health, whole, free, his at one moment. It makes everything connect. The atonement 
is where we understand who God is and who we are. It's in the atonement where the whole Bible, the whole stories, all those different strands that you read about throughout Scripture actually come and connect together. It's in the atonement where we find forgiveness and hope and a reason for our living. Without it, we have nothing of worth. With it, we have the worthiness of Jesus, the immeasurable riches of his kingdom. See, it's in the atonement where God's glory shines the brightest. Make a beginning here with me in the words found in 1 Peter chapter 2. If you have your Bible, love for you to open it up, whether that's in electronic form on your phone or in your old school real thing here, like a book, you know what those are. So a book, the Bible, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 through 25, it says this. Word of the Lord for us. For to this you have been called. This is the reason why God called you out. Why he voiced your name and is speaking to you. Because Christ also suffered for you. It's a passage in the context that's talking about suffering. Him calling us to walk through difficult times, hardships, moments where we are in pain and hurting and wounded. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. That's the purpose. That's your life purpose, to follow in the steps of Jesus. Now, I don't know you. I mean, I know a lot of you, but I don't know personally how you did this week about your life purpose. But God shaped you, created you for this, so that you might walk in his steps. He committed, that is Jesus, no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, to the Father. He, that is Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's the cross. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That we might walk away from that old destructive way of life. And we might actually live rightly the way that God has designed us to live. Live this way. By his wounds, you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep. And actually, that's a biblical metaphor that the Bible uses a lot to describe us. And you can make the conclusions, right? We're sheep. And you were straying like sheep. But have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, these words were written in the first century specifically to believers who had suffered and struggled for their faith as a huge word of encouragement and redirection. And many of them had suffered real-life persecution for their faith. Many of them had struggled and since lost. But then Peter is writing and helping them understand and grasp the amazement, the astounding beauty of the atonement and their soul's healing. They needed this infusion of hope, and he's bringing them this fire hose of hope right into them. And much like them, those people in the first century, 
We need perspective. We need understanding what we're walking through and why we're walking through it when we're choosing to follow in his steps. And the atonement speaks to this. It speaks to our old dead way of living and a way to live rightly and holy. The atonement is intended to bring change, to change us. I'm struck fairly often these days by the troubling notion that most believers, most people who call themselves Christians, miss the overwhelming beauty of the atonement. According to the Bible, God is infinitely holy. He's perfect in all he does and all he is. Leviticus 11.44 says, For I am the Lord your God. There are no others. I'm the Lord God. So consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. Be like me. Be right and pure completely, without shame, without regrets, without sin. For I am holy. See, there's no sin or brokenness or wreckage, selfishness or greed or twisted sexuality or imperfection in the Lord God in any way. Yet everyone in this room knows the troubling reality of our own struggle, right? We look in the mirror, we reflect about about our actions and our thoughts, and we know that we are not holy. And it's not just the law of the Old Testament that exposes that to us. We think about the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus gave that Sermon on the Mount, and there was a group of people who felt like they were pretty holy. And what did they discover when Jesus was speaking? Jesus says, Well, that's great that you've never murdered someone, but how about anger in your heart? Have you ever had that? Have you ever been cut off from the traffic and like, ever, like this week, multiple times? Yeah. So it's exposing us and helping us see that we are not holy. And everybody knows in this room that we're not. Scripture says it really clearly, for all of sin and fall short of the glory the perfection of who God is. We're not there. Different cultures, different religions and worldviews, they teach a lot of different things about the concept of whether we actually are broken or not. And what the Bible calls sin, not just, it is in part missing the mark of perfection, but it's also breaking this relationship we have with God. Some deny sin altogether. Some paint human behavior as normal and acceptable. But the Bible teaches that our sin is an inexcusable offense against God. And because he's a holy God, he has to punish that and bring righteousness. It's a violation our sin is against God's holiness and justice. And when I sin, and everyone does, our sin incurs a just penalty before a holy God. And we are sentenced, as Romans says, the wages of our sin is death. It's our soul's death. Throughout the pages of the Bible, we see the failing of mankind, the evidence of our condemnation, and our great loss. But if that was just the story of this, none of us would be here, right? We'd all be running away from a holy God. Who who wants that, right? The feeling of shame and condemnation all the time and and guilt. And if we were a guilt-driven people, we would be horribly mistaken and just sadly 
walking through life with no reason to worship or to walk with God. We, we would want to leave and run away from him. That's not the end story of the word. It's true, our human condition, how it describes us. But that's just the beginning. Because of this great loving intervention of God called the atonement. His work of, of Christ on the cross. Over history, um, a lot of people have made a lot of different comments about Jesus and what he was doing here. Scripture, I think, is really clear. God's word is clear that the purpose of Jesus' coming was the atonement, what he did on the cross. John 3.17 says it this way, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't come so that we would live under condemnation. So, so we could never measure up to his expectations and feel the struggle of that and the conviction of that. That's not why he came. But in order that the world might be saved through him, that God had written this story throughout history, and it was about rescue. It was about the atonement and what it could do for us. There's this poignant moment before the cross where Jesus has gathered all his disciples around him, and they're celebrating the Lord's Supper, what we call communion together. And he's giving them a reminder, a physical reminder. In just a few minutes, we're going to celebrate. It's a physical reminder of the power of the atonement. What he did when he gave his life so that we might have life and be free. And in that context, when he's talking to his disciples, he gives them a word from the Old Testament. It's the, the expanded version is found in Isaiah 53, a very well-known text in the Old Testament. I'm just going to give you a couple of those verses. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, says this, written over 700 years before the life of Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs, speaking about the Messiah who would come, the one sent by God to make things right, to give me life and hope. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. When people view Jesus that don't know him and don't know the power of the work and why he did what he did, they just see a horrible sacrifice, an execution, a person suffering without cause. But that's not the plan of God. Because it says this, But he was pierced for our transgressions, our sin, when we violated God's law. That's why he did what he did. He was crushed, quite literally, for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Our penalty, our punishment, was poured out on him, on Jesus, on the cross, so that I would not bear that. And with his wounds, we're healed. All we like sheep, oh, there's that word again, that description of me, have gone astray, we've turned every one. To his own way. And the Lord, even in that moment of my rebellion, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Over the centuries since that time, there have been a host of perspectives, the time of Christ's death, on what exactly the atonement means, the atonement, the place of the cross means. Scripture describes it this way, and I'm going to have to ask you at this point to get on your big boy pants, 
all right, to be thinking deep about Scripture because this isn't light stuff. If you came for the light church, that, that's not here right now. <laughs> Sorry. So here it is. This is what the atonement means. In the atonement, Jesus ransomed a people for himself. Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now, it might not be as familiar because we're not in the Jewish culture. Most of us aren't. But that picture of ransom was speaking to a layer of different things that people were very familiar with in the Old Testament times. There was a price if a woman was going to be married. It was called her dowry or her bride price that had to be paid by the parents if she was going to get married. And that's one of the points that he's referring to because one of the great pictures in the Bible is that we are the bride of Christ and he paid our price so that we could be married. That's one of the illustrations, one of the parts, the pieces of the metaphor. But here's a second piece. If I was a person who came in debt and I couldn't pay my debt, And I owed this debt to a person, and there was no way I was going to be able to work it off or pay it off. And I didn't have any friends that could pay it, help pay it for me. What would happen? I would sell myself to that person and become an indentured servant to them until I could work off my price. And oftentimes, that could never be paid off. I would be be in such debt that I could never pay off the price. And that's the picture of what sin did for me. I got to this place where I could never work and do enough to be able to pay the price of my sin. And I owed God an unpayable debt. And he himself stepped in and said, I have this. I'm going to pay this overwhelming price with the life of my very own son. But that's the picture of my indebtedness. And the third layer of this, I just wanted to touch on briefly, is the image of the kinsman redeemer. Some of you have read the book of Ruth, and you know the story where Ruth loses her husband. She comes to a different land and doesn't know what her future is going to hold. Boaz is a distant relative. I'll just fast forward the story. He pays the price for her, and not just for her freedom, but he pays the price so that she would be his. It's an image of what Jesus has done in the atonement to say, I'm going to pay your price. And not just so that you would be free, but that you would be mine, that you would live for me, and that we would have intimate relationship with each other. So he ransomed, Jesus ransomed a people for himself. Now, to help you understand a little bit of why the, why the price had to be paid, R.C. Sproul has a really great illustration, I think, of this. He was um, going out for ice cream one time, and he's at this ice cream shop. And um, it's relative, it had to be several years ago because the ice cream only cost two bucks, okay? So he's in this place, great ice cream. It's like, think about going to Mary Ann's or some great place, ice cream place, Benton's or something. And um, he goes out to get ice cream, and he's sitting there with his ice cream. And a little boy comes in the store and orders his ice cream, and it's two bucks, and the cashier says, that's going to be $2. And the little boy says, oh, here I am. Hands her a dollar bill. That's all he's got. She says, sorry, that's not enough. You, it takes two of those. And the boy just starts to cry. 
He's crying. He says, that's all my mommy gave me. And um, the cashier is not moved. Like, well, a tough kid that costs two bucks. And so he's watching this happen. And uh, he's like, okay, okay. I, 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 I. So he pulls out a dollar bill. Now, if you have money, and he brought some money, I just want you to pull it out real quick. Because there's something written on your dollar bill that's important for you to understand the atonement with. Okay, it could be a dollar bill. It could be a five, ten, twenty, hundred dollar bill, whatever you brought. Just put it in the offering later. Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay, no. So the note says this. I know you never even trusted me to bring out your dollar because you thought I was going to say something like that, right? So here it is. This note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. It's backed by the government of the United States, and it makes that statement. So when R.C. Sproul goes up to that cashier and says, here, I got this, and he pays that cashier, the cashier has to accept it and say, okay, your debt is paid, right? Now, that's not the same as our debt. Our debt is more like this. The little boy walks into the store. The cashier is serving other people. He goes behind the counter, steals ice cream, grabs his ice cream, and goes running for the door, right? And the cashier sees it, runs and grabs him by the nape of the neck and calls the police. The police come and they say, what have you done? You've broken the law. And now you have a life sentence. No, it's not that harsh, okay? But he has incurred a moral debt because he violated the law in stealing. That's what sin does. It incurs a debt that we cannot pay. And if R.C. Sproul would have gotten up at that point and said, well, here's the two bucks. It's not a big deal. The cashier would not have to accept that money because it would not have paid the debt. There was a moral debt, a violation that this kid had performed. And that's the picture of our sin and why God ransomed it, why he paid it with an immeasurably costly payment, the life of his son. In the atonement, Jesus also came as our substitute. Now, there is a phrase that those who study theology use. It's called the substitutionary atonement. And by that, it's picturing what we talked about in the Isaiah 53 passage, that he bore my sin, Mark's sin, your sin. He took that on himself. And that's why in that moment on the cross where Jesus is dying, giving up his human life for mine, the father turns away and can no longer look. He no longer looks because he's poured out the wrath and the punishment for my sin on his son. And he cannot look at that. He took my payment. He was my substitute. My guilt and shame rested on him. In the Old Testament, they used a sheep at the Day of Atonement. The people's shame and sin and guilt was put on that sheep symbolically. And that sheep gave its life once a year, but that had to keep being renewed. Scripture says, in this sacrifice of Jesus, it was paid once and for all. For all time, all sin was put on him. And you might wonder, well, really, so what's the big deal about that of my sin? It's, I'm separated, so I just go to hell, what, whatever, if that even 
exists, right? If that's even a place, and can I even trust what the Bible says about that? And, um, and that's just separated from God, and I don't want anything to do with God anyway. But actually, that's not the image that Scripture paints of hell itself. See, God does not have a place where he is not. Hell is not the absence of God. Hell is the presence of the wrath and punishment of God and the absence of all of his blessing. That's what scripture teaches about hell. And he took through the atonement my punishment on himself so I would not have to experience that if I simply trust what he's done on the cross for me and place my faith there. That's what makes it such good news, right? That's what's so beautiful about it. And in the atonement, Jesus is redeeming sacrifice. Hebrews 9, 12 says, He entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and cows, but by means of his own blood. He went there and sacrificed his own life for me, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus was fully God and fully man, as we've been talking about in this series. And as fully man, he was fully human in every way, with all the weakness and the pain and the struggle that that means. And he was fully God. He was sinless and perfect. And thus, the sacrifice has infinite worth and can pay off the horrible cost of my debt. In dying, he did something that no one else could do. He did it. And just to clear up any confusion you might have, um, there's an old... There's an old hymn that has a line in it that says, the line is like, And thou, my God, shouldst die for me. You know that hymn? Here's the problem. Some hymns don't teach the accurate biblical truth. I hate to say it, and that's a great hymn, right? That phrase actually is misleading because God did not die. God cannot die. Think of it this way. If God dies, what happens? The universe blows apart. Because all things are held together in him and through him, Colossians chapter 1 teaches us. God did not die, but Christ died. His human nature died. He suffered death in a real physical way. And he went through real physical pain and struggle and then physically died and physically rose from the dead. That's what scripture teaches us just so we're clear about what happened in the sacrifice. And in the atonement, Jesus reconciled us to God. What was once completely separate, he brought together. It says this in Romans 5, 6 through 11. You still with me? It's deep stuff, right? Romans 5, 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, that, that phrase means actually unable to do anything by myself. I'm laid out flat on the bed. I can't do I can't even lift my fingers. While I'm still in that spot at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's me when I couldn't do anything about it. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners rebelling against him, separated from him, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, that is his life. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. 
More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation, all that was broken, all that was messed up, all that was separated and alienated from God in this one fell swoop on the cross at the atonement when he died for me, changed. And if I place my faith in what he's done in that work, something that I could never accomplish on my own changes, God forgives and cleanses and heals and brings me back to him. Only a work that God can do. And that Romans 5 text also points out that in the atonement, Jesus was our propitiation is the word. He cleansed me, and it's this weird metaphor, right? By his blood. It's, that's what cleansed me. Now, it wasn't like this mystical thing where the blood becomes magical and does this healing thing. It was the giving of his life that mattered. It says this in Romans 3, 23 through 26, for all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, which we read earlier, and are justified by his grace, unmerited love, as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus when he paid my price, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a blood sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. I take it with an open hand what he's done for me. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Day of atonement comes and he passed over over the sin because of the sacrifice of the lamb, but that was not an eternal sacrifice. Only what Christ did on the cross actually had eternal significance and mattered and took care of what needed to be taken care of. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, that is God, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. No magical power in actual the blood of Jesus, but it was in the giving of his life. Now, you might question that because I know a lot of traditions do, but let me ask the question. So Jesus is a little boy. He's growing up, right? And he's playing with his friends in the neighborhood, and he falls, and he skins his knee. Was that the, the giving of his blood when he skinned his knee? Was that enough for my rescue and salvation? According to Scripture, The answer is no. It was when he gave his very life on that cross for me. That's what matters. So, John 3, 36 tells us this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. In the atonement... Jesus won an eternal victory, an eternal victory for me, once and for all, for all time. He doesn't have to keep that sacrifice. He saved me once and for all. And for those of you who wrestle with your sin, like all of us, you sinned against God. He does not have to die on the cross again for you. He's done that once and for all. You're secure in your relationship with God because of his sacrifice. You do need to go to him and get that right. But his sacrifice has covered you already. So, again, the beauty of this great act, the atonement, it's in the atonement that we understand the holiness and the righteousness and the justice and the mercy and sovereign grace of God. 
It's in the atonement that we understand our real true nature and our standing as humans and what we need. We begin to realize that our actions have separated us from God and violated his holiness. We're depraved. We're a wreckage. And we need him completely. We're weak without him. We are enslaved. We are alienated. Scripture says we're dead. But it's in the atonement that the whole narrative of the Bible comes together as one and proclaims that you can have life and freedom and wholeness. This is good news for you. What God has done to give his own son so that you might have life. Without it, we're nothing. With it, we have the worthiness of Jesus to the glory of God the Father. So two big questions. If you've never trusted in the power of the atonement, what Jesus did on the cross giving his life, the Bible says you're dead and alienated and separated and all your good works don't amount to a hill of beans. You cannot save yourself. You can only trust him and receive And I'm asking you this morning, wherever you're sitting, to just do business, be honest with God, and receive it. Here's how you do it. Just come to God right now where you're sitting. Just get quiet before him. Tell him, Lord, God, I acknowledge I'm broken, that I've sinned, and there's nothing I can do about it. And I need your help. I need your rescue. I need your forgiveness. And I'm asking for it. I'm placing my trust on what you've done for me in history. I confess before you that I need you. And I want to follow you in your steps. So Lord, make me new. I trust in you and what you've done on the cross for me. When you say that, when you trust him, The power of what he's done through the atonement changes you. It makes you new. And for those of you who have taken that step, you've trusted him, let me give you just a couple words of encouragement. First, enjoy it. Just enjoy what he's done. Be regularly thankful to God for this amazing gift, his This crazy, overwhelming love that you did not deserve in any way, that I did not deserve in any way. Just revel in it. Take pleasure in your worship. Don't come here and just say, ah, it's a chore. Actually engage in it like, wow, what he's done for me, I can't can't give it back. I can't pay it back, but I I just want to say to him, thank you and enjoy it. And choose to live with him with that kind of joy, leaving the old dead way behind and actually live for righteousness. That's what, the, that's what the word calls us to, to live for it, to walk in that. Second, live it out actually in community. 1 John 4, 9-11 says this, In this, the love of God was made manifest, that is, understandable and made known to us, That God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation, to give his life, sacrifice his blood on the cross for our sins. Beloved, 
If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. When you think about the atonement this week, love somebody. Love this community. That's actually what it's speaking to, the community of believers in specific. Make this place, this church, a tangible expression of the love of God, and it will go viral. In fact, you might want to try practicing it before you leave this morning. You think about what God has done for us, and you love somebody around you. Just randomly in the pew, just blow them away. Tell them that they're loved, that they know it. And finally, tell somebody about it. Don't keep this news under wrap. This is the good news. Find a conversation to have, not just on Sunday morning, but throughout the week with the people in your world. Right now, we have kids at winter camp. They're thinking about the good news, and some have come to him. On the 4th, we've got people, I have people in my world, and you have people in your world who in their heart language speak Mandarin. They could be here, and they could hear the good news. Just invite them. See what happens. You never know. And if they come, they could discover the good news. We have a class. Um, it's actually starting, and it's more than just, it's just a conversation time. We have some men and women who, in our fellowship that are going to be hosting one. It happens at 9 o'clock on Sunday mornings. You can bring someone there that doesn't know the Lord, or you, if you're just investigating, you can go yourself, or you can just go, and you can think, oh, how can I use this tool? And the tool is this, pretty simple. We're just going to have some fun stuff to eat. It's going to be upstairs, 9 o'clock, across the way, and people are going to gather. They're going to um, look at one video clip that's going to be three, four minutes long. It's just a great metaphor to get people to start asking questions and thinking, and then we'll have a discussion, and then... Um, there's going to be another teaching component that's about 10 minutes long, 10 to 12 minutes long. And then people talk after that. It's done really professionally. It's really great, great discussions. And we're not sitting there as answer people. We just want people to ask their questions about who God is and how to have a relationship with him. So invite someone to that. Most significantly, think about what God has done for you and have a conversation with somebody in your world your place where you live, where you go to school, where you work, about this great thing that God has done through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let me pray for you. Father, we're turning our attention now to celebrate what you've done, to take joy in it, to thank you for it, and remember the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Help us to do that well and help us to live for you, to leave the dead behind and to live for you. Jesus' name and for his glory, all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church Sermon Podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. To know more about Bridges Community Church, please go to our website at bridgescc.org.